afternoon. You know, if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Zechariah. And if you can't find Zechariah, you're like me. So go to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and go one more towards Genesis. Um, This semester, I'm teaching a class at the university on the prophets, and um, I decided to add some new texts so the students could do one of their assignments, and one of them was in this chapter, chapter 9. To my knowledge, I don't think I've ever assigned it before, and so I did a lot of homework on it and looking at it with various students, and um, so I got it all done, and I thought, okay, you know, did it for the students. Then I get this phone call from your pastor, and he says, uh, actually, it was a text message, and he said, do you think um, this is a long shot? You'd be free this Sunday? And I wrote back, I said, sure, what do you want? And he says, I'd like you to do Palm Sunday, and I'd like you to do a Palm Sunday message, which was a bit of a stretch because I seldom do the messages on the times. Do you know what I mean? I'm one of those guys that, like I preached on divorce one time on Easter Sunday. I was going through Mark, you know, they didn't expect it. All those people come once a Sunday. Whoa, they were shocked. Anyway, um, and so, but then the more I kept thinking about it, I thought, no, you should preach on, you know, this. And I've never done a sermon. I was trying to think, I have done a sermon on this. But I thought, I don't know, maybe Pastor Manny had a reason for that. And then it dawned on me that chapter 9 is on this in Zechariah. Okay. So so let me read this to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation. Let me read that again to you. He is what? Just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. The the last lecture I gave in this class was on Zechariah. We didn't cover these verses, but I gave them sort of an overview of it, and I had read where all the scholars are, and the scholars are pretty much convinced that it's hard to see why Zechariah did what he did. And they have a hard time figuring out what history lies behind these messages. And you almost get the idea that Zechariah was writing down what he was told. He didn't necessarily understand why he wrote it. Does that make sense? Okay, let me read on to you. Because now it gets sort of strange. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And you say, well, what's that mean? Is that a metaphor? Yeah, it means that God himself is going to take Israel's capacity to do war away from them. And he says, he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then it gets even stranger. It says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
Return to the stronghold. In other words, return to safety. You prisoners of hope, even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. And as you read through this, you think, well, he's going to come humbly riding on a donkey. And he is just having his salvation with him. And that's, of course, referring to Palm Sunday. And then he predicts that the people of God's capacity to do acts of strength or warfare will be taken away by him. But peace will flow. And he will eventually make them his weapons. It's sort of strange. And I don't think he understood what that was. In fact, First Peter agrees. So turn to First Peter with me. By the way, um, after I got this phone call, um, I started again looking for the song that kept going through my mind. I've been looking for this song for months. Um, it's sung by an a cappella group. And um, you say, what's their name? I don't know their name. I don't think they ever made another CD. Um, I need to go give it to my daughter because she knows how to do computers and she'll make me copies because I'm going to wear this puppy out if I don't. And uh, you say, well, where do you keep the CD? Well, I didn't know where I kept it. And so I went through all my CDs looking for this thing to play this one song and uh, couldn't find it. So finally, you know, I finally gave up and I went to all my wife's CDs, which are many more than mine. And went through every one of those things and couldn't find it. And then one time I'm over there and she goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for that a cappella group, all oh, that one you like so well. I said, you didn't throw that one away. She goes, no, I never throw your stuff away. She says, but look down below. So I pulled furniture back and opened these cabinets. And there was three boxes there and I found it. You say, why did you want that song? I don't know. I just wanted it. And I played it on the way to work Friday. Okay. Let me show you why I wanted it. It's in verse 12. The last little phrase. Do you see it there? It says, which angels desire to look into. You say, what's this song like? I don't know. If If I sang it to you, you'd all run out the door in horror, so I won't sing it to you. I don't have a very good voice. But this is kind of what the lyrics are. It says, Angels long to look into these things. And that's the whole song on what they long to look into. And this has always created in my mind this picture of these great angelic beings looking over the edge of heaven billions and billions and billions of light years away, however the thing works, and they see the little insignificant planet earth and they look at it in wonder and I thought what did they wonder at what fascinated the great angels of heaven what did they long to look into and so go back to verse 6 and we'll look at this it says in this you greatly what just like Zechariah 9.9 though now For a little while, if need be, 
you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice, there's that word again, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, and here's that word again, salvation of your souls. And of this salvation, the prophets inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And I kind of think of this mentally. I think of these great prophets, maybe because we know they read one another. We can prove that from doing research in the prophets. But we know they didn't know all that they spoke of. Something was going on that was so great that they themselves, and who knows, maybe they got together and we know there were schools of them and they talked with one another. And they said, what do these things mean? They have been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. But what are they? And I'm sure they peered as, as deeply as they could into the future, not quite understanding the glory that they looked at. So Peter goes on and he says... Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand of what? The sufferings. They knew he would suffer. Isaiah 53, Zechariah says he's going to come how? On a horse or on a donkey? What's more majestic? A horse. In fact, in the ancient world, if you came into a city on a donkey, it meant you meant peace. If you came in on a horse, it meant you came in there to take over and to control. And he came into Jerusalem on Easter Sunday, or Palm Sunday, riding on the cult of a donkey, humbly. And they were looking, the prophets saying, suffering. How can the anointed of God suffer? But then they also were shown by the Spirit that glory followed the suffering. And then, of course, our verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached to you the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels longed even to look into. You know, um, I've been doing a lot of uh, reading about the history of Christianity. Christianity grows when the church does not have political power. Do you know how Europe was converted? Northern Europe? By the Irish. Because the Irish were the least politically powerful people in all of Northern Europe. God used the Irish, who, who uh, brought a lot of people in the Caucasian mountains to Christianity. It was the Armenians. They had no political power because God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And as I've been reading that, and I, I know right now that Christianity um, shrinks, I think it's by 7,500 people in Europe. I think it's every day. And in Africa, 
it grows by 22500 per day. Which has more money, Europe or Africa? Europe. Where the poor are, he is. And I started to look at that, and I've been watching that. And then I've been looking back on all the people that have influenced me, and you say, well, who's been some of the most powerful influences on you? Not the people you would think. Not the people you would think. You see, Jesus came into Jerusalem humbly, riding a donkey. Um, I was looking at this text, and in came a student of mine this semester. He's a great, tall, big, tall kid. I've heard things about him before the semester started. Um, One of my colleagues came and says, I hear you got so-and-so and and -and so-and-so in your class. He says, these are great kids. I had them last semester. He says, you are so lucky to have these kids. And so as the semester got on, I started thinking, well, he was totally right. What a great group of kids to teach. And this one kid, though, we've never talked privately. So he came in Friday, and he sat down, and we start talking. And then um, we um, were just discussing stuff. And I said, now, where'd you grow up? Because I know you're a mission from a mission field. And he says, well, my parents right now are missionaries in Tanzania. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, I'm not used to the city. I don't like the city. So I was showing him with mountain paths. He can go up here in the foothills that are free. And I said, you'll love to get away from L.A., asphalt, just go up in the mountains. And then he was telling other things. And I said, so you lived all your life in Africa? He says, no, no, I was in Pasadena for four or five years, went to junior high here. And before that, though, we were raised in Kenya. And so we were talking about things. And then I said, so do you miss Africa? He says, you know, actually I do. He says, I'm glad I've been grow- I was raised in both. And he's finishing his education. And he- then he started telling me stories about his home. And the one that really hit me And I don't know why he told me, but maybe he told me this story because Manny told me I had to preach on Palm Sunday. (laughs) He told me this story. He says his brother, his older brother, is a soccer player and a very good one. And he had a sidekick. And the two of them started to play in one of the most dangerous areas in the largest town there. And they played soccer with the kids. And they had a wonderful time. They had a great coach. And they loved playing soccer with these kids. But the area is so poor and so dilapidated that you can't drink the water. So what they would do is when they would come to practice, they would load their backpacks and ride their bikes to practice and bring water and share it with all the kids. Then they would play with them or all their other teammates. And then they were just too kind-hearted to ever drink any themselves. So as thirsty as they were, they would wait till practice was over. And when they got outside the place where the water was really bad, they'd pull over and get a drink of water and then go home on their bikes. Well, one day they finished practice. He was telling my brother and his friend finished practice. And they took off, and they didn't stop for water, which is the first time they'd ever had. And they don't know why they did. They just went on the way home. And they came to practice the next day. And the coach came up to him and said, I see you didn't stop for water. And they said, how do you know? He says, I followed you. They said, why would you follow us? He says, well, what you didn't know is the moment you left practice, three kids decided they wanted to steal your bikes, and they all had machetes on their side. And they were chasing you. If you would have stopped for water, they'd have caught up with you and taken your bikes and maybe done you in. So I saw it, so I traced them and ran after them. And then when you didn't stop, they finally stopped, and I caught up with them. And the moment I caught up with them, I yelled, thief. 
and however you say it in that language, and the whole community, though poor, was a very honest community, and often that's the way it is, and they all poured out of their houses, and they went after those three kids with the machetes, and they were going to beat them till they basically died. And so the coach goes, no, 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 let them go. No, we're going to get him. We do not want thieves. And they were going to kill him. And the coach insisted. And the three boys were saved. So these two guys come back to practice. You know, and they find out they just, you know, had a narrow, you know, thing. And guess who else was there? The three boys with the machetes. Guess why they were there? Well, they showed up earlier and they went up to the coach and they said, you could have taken our lives and we deserve to die. Why did you forgive us? And he says, I'm Christian. They said, what's that mean? He says, well, well, guess what they do now? From then on, they came to every practice and with their three machetes, they escorted the two missionaries so that they're safe all the time. They're now the bodyguards of the two people they were going to rob. And they love being there. But what brought them to be around the Christians? A Bible message or an action? An action. And then I sat there and I started thinking of all the studying I've done of missionary work. And I began to realize if we're willing to ride the donkey, then justice and salvation can enter. If we insist on riding the horse, then we're in trouble. And not just us. The people we're supposed to be helping are in trouble. So, let me show you how Mark does this. He tells us the story of Palm Sunday. And if you'd like to turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says, They drew near Jerusalem to Bethage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, what are you do- Why are you doing this? Then say, Well, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Now, I don't know if you've thought of this ever happening. What if you were sent by the Lord into a really dangerous part of L.A. where everybody's pretty tight and everybody knows one another and you start hot-wiring some car on the street and all the neighborhoods gather around you, all the neighbors, and they go, what are you doing? And you turn around and say, well, the Lord has need of this. Will that work? We'll try it. (laughs) And we'll go to your funeral. This is kind of weird, huh? Go in there and say, the Lord has need of it. Well, watch what happens. So they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside of the street and they loosed it. And some of those who stood by saying, what are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. It worked. And they bring the donkey to Jesus I've been thinking why he did this and how he did it. Did God who knows the future know the donkey was there? 
And did the God who knows the future and knows every heart and every soul, did he know that maybe someone for years had been begging God for a way to serve him? And maybe they even prayed, if you will show me what you need, Lord, I will give it. And maybe because Jesus knows the future, he knew when they used those words, it would have fulfilled something God had been dealing with those people for years. And I thought, maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. Why would they let their property go to a total couple strangers? The Lord has need of it. And it worked. And then it also, I thought about this. Did Jesus want to ride a horse or did he want to ride a donkey? Now, he was planning this. He wanted to come humbly. So they bring it. He doesn't own it. Jesus doesn't have money. And when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their clothes on it because there's no saddle. And he sat on it. And then they spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches. They must have stripped all the trees in that part of Jerusalem. And they spread them out on the road because these are poor people. They don't have money. But they wanted to show how excited they were. And it must have been fun to watch. Them ripping stuff off the trees. And they've been so happy because no doubt these people had heard of Jesus. They'd heard him preach. Or many of them had probably been healed by him or had relatives that were healed. And they began to think things through and they thought, is this the promised one? Is this the Messiah? Is this a whole new way of encountering power? Humbly. And a power that serves us and takes care of us and cares about us. And they must have been pretty excited. And so this is what we are told they did. They went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because see, the Lord is a giver. And this man had always given. He comes in the name. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into the temple, or excuse me, went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Which if you could see that in those days. In fact, you can really kind of tell this if you look at an aerial view of Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem sat on 35 to 40 acres. It was a rather big church. One half of a million people could worship there at a time. This was an enormous structure. The very top of the temple itself was covered in sheets of gold. And they say you could see it for miles and miles and miles as you approached the city. It was magnificent. And people would come from all over the world to worship there because you could only sacrifice in Jerusalem according to Deuteronomy. Only where he causes his name to dwell. And most of the Jews at the time of Jesus did not live in Jewish lands. The vast majority of them. We think five out of six lived elsewhere. So to come to Jerusalem usually meant you came once. If you were in Babylon, it was a six-month journey and there was more people in Babylon than there probably was in Jerusalem that were Jews. And then six months back. So that's a year without work. So you probably saved all your money so that once, just once, you could come to Jerusalem. And if you're in Rome, that's a four-month journey. 
If you were in Galilee, it's still three days there and three days back because they didn't have bullet trains in those days. And so you had to walk the whole thing. And maybe if you were in Galilee, you were trying to, you know, plan for this. And you say, you know, one time I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to take the best offering I ever had. I'm going to bring the best lamb. We have a very beautiful one. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm taking it to the Lord. And perhaps you carried it all the way from Galilee. And you crossed the Jordan River and the, the scary road up to the, the, the road to Jericho. And you came into Jerusalem and you're pretty excited because you were really so happy that you can give this to the Lord. And you brought it to the temple. And then what would happen to you as you got there? Is someone would stop you. They'd say, we need to inspect your lamb. They would say, there's a fault with this. And you go, no, 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 this is the best lamb I've ever, there's a fault with it. And you go, okay, he's a priest, okay, okay. You have to buy the lamb from our lambs. They'll sell you one. So you took your lamb. You had to do something with it. So you sold it below market price out in Jerusalem somewhere. And you went and bought their lamb. And you saw it was just a piece of junk. And it was really, really overpriced. And then if you came from Babylon, you couldn't, of course, carry a lamb. So you brought money. And then the priest would tell you, you cannot give an offering unless the money is Jerusalem money. So go to the money changers and guess what the exchange rate was like. Yeah, you were taken for a ride. And so he's looking at the temple. And what was he thinking? What was he thinking? We don't know. But people from all over the world would come there. So watch what happens the next day. This is Monday. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethanage and he was hungry. And by the way, where did they stay at night? Do you know? See, I don't know. Was it the Hilton? No, no. Was it the Mount of Olives Inn? No, they slept in an orchard. Jesus didn't have a lot of money. You see, well, he owned the universe. True. They came from the Mount of Olives, basically. And then, as they're coming on their way to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree with leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but the leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Which makes sense, right? I have a plum tree in my backyard, a... um, My apricot went bad. I cut it down. So I got a lemon tree, a kumquat tree, an avocado tree, an apple tree in the front yard. And the bear from the mountains sat in my uh, peach tree and broke it down. So that's gone. Um, But I'm from Fresno, so I planted something. I got red onions in there right now. But uh, you say, so are you picking a lot of fruit now? No, it's April. There is no fruit. So he goes over to the fruit tree. And there's no fruit. And then the strangest thing happens. In response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples all heard it. You say, why did he do that? So they came to Jerusalem. And when Jesus came into the temple, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. 
and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. The other gospels say he went through the temple with a whip. And you kick somebody's tables over, he was what? How angry? How, on a scale of 1 to 10, how angry do you think he was? He was ticked. He didn't run around giving little, little tracks and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He kicked their tables over. He went bananas on these people. And you say, well, why did he do that? Was he mad because he had to ride a donkey so he's taking it out on the money changers? He seemed so peaceable and kind on Palm Sunday. And he's filled with anger and rage on Monday. How about this? He wasn't mad when people put him down. But he was very angry if you put a weak person down. The wrath of God burns when you hurt the poor. And you take advantage of those who are vulnerable. And we as Christians should be mad too. But never mad in our behalf. Only are those who are being pushed around. And some of you men say, you know, if someone was hurting a child, I'd take them out. Or I'd educate them. But I can't because I'm a Christian. No, you can. Be a good educational experience for them. But you're never to defend yourself with your power. Because he wants you to come with gentleness. And he'll break your bow and your chariots and your horses. You say, why? Well, think of him. Remember sometimes he would speak and he would say, be healed and molecules would rearrange themselves on the, on the body of a leper and their entire body would respond to the power of his word and they would all of a sudden be cleansed of the ugly condition they had suffered with. And then he would just speak a word and people's bodies would be healed. He just touched people and they would rise from the dead. He had unbelievable power. Did he ever use that power to defend himself? You know, if you read in Matthew and Luke what he said on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we have records of it. And they both basically give us about two chapters. And one chapter says, this is what he taught the disciples. And the other chapter says, they were constantly attacking him. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And trying to trap him. And they were extremely rude to him. And he was the Son of God. And, and I love what John Corson says. All he had to do was just flip one of them to China and they'd have been a lot more polite. Or how about this? Pharisees are rude just one more time and he goes, okay. And then they all have leprosy. Because he could have given it as well as taken it away. And remember when they arrested him and brought him to trial and they kept humiliating him and they said, remember Herod says, show us a miracle. Well, if that was me, I said, okay, I'll show you a miracle. I'll go, mm. and then they'd all had noses that were full of lead and then they would slowly peel off their faces so there was blood everywhere. And I'd say, you want another miracle? Be polite. Did he ever do that? You know, I went through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is attacked 35 And never once does he use his power for himself. 
but he goes to the temple with a whip. Let me show you why. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, the God of Israel was famous all through the world for being a unique understanding of religion. All the great religions of the world had multiple deities. They had a God of war. They had a God of death. They had a God of agriculture and fertility. And the great Mesopotamian religions had a God of justice. They called him Shamash, the sun god. But no one could get close to Shamash. Shamash never interacted with them. He was high in the skies like the sun is. But the Jews taught that the God who spoke and created the worlds with just his voice was also the God that brought them justice and fairness. He was the God that was concerned about the poor and the orphan and the widow and the stranger. And that was the most amazing view of God mankind had ever seen. And he had a temple in Jerusalem. And in the very shadow of his own temple, his own priests were scamming the people. Do you see why Jesus was mad? People had traveled all over the world to come and worship the God of justice only to be cheated at the temple of the God of justice by its own priests. Now, how many of you know people who won't go to church because they've been mistreated? You know people like that? I do. You know, when I grew up, um, I was pretty close to my grandfather. In fact, today people say, you are Charlie's clone. You were very much like your grandfather. And I hung out with him a lot. And I don't know why I did. I just, we just, I don't know, maybe I was the only kid that would go with him when he went to his cabin because the other parents were too protective. My folks let me try things. And I did all kinds of weird things when he wasn't looking up there and climbed off rocks and everything. But also found a stable of horses one time and planned to ride them without a saddle. Um, luckily, they moved him before I got back up there. But, um, but I love being around this man. But I just took it for granted he wasn't a Christian. He was cool. He was my grandfather. And I don't know why it is I liked him so much, but I, he never went to church. He never did. My grandmother went to church. My grandmother always prayed for us. My grandfather, no. When we, at dinner time, he never prayed. So I assumed he wasn't a Christian. And then one day when I was about 16, I found out that he was. And that when he was my age, to use his words, all I could see was God. And he was extremely, extremely close to Jesus. Except one day when he was in junior high, he was up, or high school, he was up in the church and he was in the, the loft where this, the choir was. And I think he was doing some chore, picking up the papers or something. And so no one saw him up there. And in came the, min the new minister. And he learned the minister, listened to the minister talk to the uh, head deacon. And he says, yeah, I'm going to fleece this church for all it's worth. They're going to pay me a big salary. Guess that what that did to my, my grandfather as a young boy. Never went to church again. So when he was a newly married young man, he never went to church. And the pastor was a new pastor, a different guy in a different city. The pastor got on a bicycle 
and drove six miles in those old bikes on old roads all the way out to my grandfather's ranch, knocked on the door and said, Charlie, I want you in church Sunday. And my grandfather went every single Sunday until the man left. Because, see, he had been cheated and saw corruption and wanted nothing to do with it anymore. Until he saw that innocent guy who had the humility to ride six miles on a bicycle and shake his hand. You see the difference? Jesus is mad what they've done to the name of God. And you're probably living and working with people who don't want much to do with God and you think they're just mean people. I bet if you knew some of their stories, you'd be shocked. Because I've got a couple kids that sit in my classes and I think, you know, you kids are idiots. you got a chance to go to a Christian school. you got a chance to learn the Bible. And you just sit there like a blump on a log. You know, you're just idiots, you know. And then, you know, something inside of me saying, don't judge, don't judge. And I'm judging. The Lord says, don't judge. And I'm and then, so... Every time I found out their stories, I've been wrong. Say, how many times have you been wrong? About every time. So you're about what? About Yeah, I'm about two for 90. And this, I came home the, earlier this semester in this prophet's class, and I told my wife, I said, this, this girl's just a passel of trouble. I don't know why I let her in. Nothing but trouble. And so my wife, being different than me, prays for her. Me, I'm just frustrated with her at that doesn't study, complains about her grades. And so then I thought, okay, what should you do? You should probably run her over in your car. So I decided to pray for her. And the very next Monday night when the class meets, I was walking to my car, and for some strange reason, it was the first, I think, it was the first Monday since the semester started that kids didn't stay after and talk with me. So I got to my truck real quickly. I fired it up. I pulled into the lane to get out of the school. And there's that student. And then it it hit me. They had a backpack on. It was huge. And they just looked over and you could see the sorrow in their eyes. It's like the Lord says, you have no idea what's going on in people's lives. You've judged this person. You don't know probably how many times this kid's been put down. You need to pray and quit judging. And I thought about that. I thought, whoa, I'm out of line here. And how many people do we know at work or in our families, because I have relatives who won't go to church because of what's been done to them by some people who said they were Christians. And Jesus gets really mad when you hurt those people. So watch what happens next. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and they sought how they might destroy him. Because, you know, you don't take phony people away from their money. They get really mad. But they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when the evening come, he'd go out of the city. And now in the morning, this would be Tuesday, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that these things he says will be done, 
he will have whatever he says. And therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe and you will receive them and you will have them. And I thought, okay, he's teaching off this fig tree thing, right? But how many of you have Jesus' words in red in your Bible? Do you have that? Okay, is he through talking? No, so let me read on. He's been talking about prayer that if you have faith, you will get what you pray for. Then he follows it with this. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, run them over with your chariot and... Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Okay. If you have anything against anyone... Forgive them. That your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. And if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. He said, what a strange teaching. How come this is tied to this? And in fact, let me open it even wider for you. If you take a look at chapter 11, you have Palm Sunday, Right? He comes in humbly. It's prophesied and he does it. Then you have the killing of the fig tree. And in the middle of the killing of the fig tree, you have him cleansing the temple. How do all three of those things work together? If we believe the Holy Spirit wrote Mark, and we're right, I think, to do so, why did he put these three together? Why entry in humility on a cult, the killing of a fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple? Let me make a suggestion. It is appropriate for the Lord of glory to come on a donkey in humility. It's just the beginning. We're going to humiliate him further. And in his, in his humility, he will cleanse our sins. It is appropriate for trees that are fig trees to give figs. And it is appropriate when you go to the temple of the God of justice to receive justice. And let me add one more. It is appropriate if you are his son or his daughter for you to forgive. Because why was he coming in on a donkey? If he'd have came in on a horse, he'd have come in with power, would they have crucified him? No, they'd have been afraid. And you and I would die in our sins. It's his humility that bought our salvation. It's appropriate to be humble. And that appropriateness, that righteousness, bought our salvation. And then he says it's appropriate to get figs from fig trees. And it's appropriate to be treated well and to be treated justly at the temples and the churches that serve the God of justice. And then he says it is appropriate if you bear my name to be like me. You know, I've watched this over the years. The best way to teach Christianity is to be it. 
You say, but aren't you a kind of like a professional Bible explainer? I'm trying to think of a word for myself. <laughs> How many schooling have you had? More than you would wish to know. How many commentaries do you have at home? Well, don't ask my wife because I've filled most of the house with them. You see, so you read and you study a lot. Yeah. Have you won people by your words to Christ? Well, let me see. No. I've never talked anyone into being a Christian yet. You said, how many times have you tried? About 200. Personal intense conversations. Sometimes over months and years. You said, have people become Christians? Yes. How'd that happen? Well, it certainly wasn't my words. I've watched this over the years. People need to see the faith in the flesh. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem in his mind. He came in the flesh on a donkey. And we need to forgive people and it will preach the gospel in the most powerful of ways. That man in Africa, that Christian coach, did those three boys with machetes open themselves to the gospel because he gave them a message or because he saved their lives and forgave them? And here's my hope. That we, because we're his sons, it's appropriate for us to forgive. But I think that's why he speaks about faith before he brings this forgiveness thing up here. It takes faith to forgive. It's really hard. Ah, little things, it's easy, right? But on the big things, uh-uh. And yet, you say, ah, I can't forgive. I'll lose control. Of course you will. It'll be like I've been stepped on. Yeah, it'll be like you're riding a donkey. It is by faith that you can do it. You see, it's impossible. It is impossible. You see, are, are you by nature a really sweet guy and you just let things slide? No. What are you by nature? I'm a hot-tempered son of a gun. You say, no, not you. Oh, yeah. I'm the famous one in our family for being the hot-tempered one. I have broken teeth to prove it. A string of times of being kicked out of school to prove it. And you say, how do you break that? You can't. But he, if you have faith, he'll help you. And if you want to, he'll help you. Let me close by reading to you two verses. They're from the book of Psalms. Psalm 108. If you can't find Psalm 108, it's right after Psalm 107. Or page 699 in my Bible, or... Again, that's why God made the table of contents. Um, look up Psalm, Psalm 108. By the way, it wasn't hard to find these verses. They're all through the Bible. So let me just read two of them to you, and we'll do this in closing. The psalmist says, Give us help from trouble. And sometimes the biggest trouble we're in is we know we need to forgive these idiots in our lives. For help in man is useless. Through God, we will do valiantly.
For it is He who shall tread down our enemies. You see that in 12 and 13? Ask for God or from God for help and you'll do valiantly. And then the enemy of your soul will be destroyed and the enemy of the people who you think are idiots will be destroyed. And you might be wrong about them. They may have some deep hurts that when you get to know their stories, you will sympathize with them. And who knows? Some of those people may yet to become your best friends. And God may use them to do a great thing. Years ago, I heard an Egyptian preacher and he tried to start a church in Egypt and you can't get a permit to start a church in Egypt. It's a, they just won't. You have to get a permit and if you build one without a permit, they'll rip it down. It's a Muslim country. But they gave this guy a permit because when he was a soldier, he was kind to his Muslim officers and they never forgot his kindness. They would One time they sent him for cigarettes. He says, no. They go, you, you're, you go there, we'll put you in jail. He says, I will not go get you cigarettes. He says, why not? He says, cigarettes aren't good for you. They'll hurt your health. And they're about to put him in jail. Then the captain says, you care that much about me? You'll go to jail for my health? He says, I'm a Christian. Of course I would go to jail for your health. Well, they never forgot that. And years later, those captains became generals in the Egyptian army. And when he applied for his permit, they saw the permit and made sure he got it. And then he just continued to be the faith in the flesh. And all the Arab boys that would throw rocks on their building, because they didn't have roofs, they had those um, metal um, corrugated sheets. They would Every time they had a prayer meeting, the, the Arab boys would throw rocks on their things. So he went out and he says, why do you guys do that? This is because you're Christian. He says, okay, just want to know. And they said, hey, uh, can we ask you a question? And he says, yeah. He says, well, you have classes on how to sew, don't you, and how to read and write. Because see, in Egypt, no one goes to school but the rich. He says, yeah, we do. He says, can our sisters come? He says, yeah. But they're not Christian. He says, I know. Let them come. So he taught all the Muslim girls how to sew and how to read and write and all the Muslim boys for free. And so guess what happened? They stopped throwing rocks, and every time he had an evangelistic campaign, guess who passed out his flyers? <laughs> all the Arab boys. Did he know that would happen? I don't think so. He just did the right thing, and by faith, God blessed him. We need to do the right thing, and it's going to be hard. And so the psalmist says, Help from man is useless, so ask for help from God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for its people. And I thank you that just being in their presence, I sense you. And Father, their prayer is to grow and become stronger in you. And their prayer and their hope is to reach their relatives and reach their neighbors, reach their co-workers and reach all the people they know for you. And Father, we ask that you bless that hope. You bless that desire. And Father, the great angels look from heaven at the greatness of you and your humility. And it made them marvel. Father, may the world look down at us and marvel because we're like you. Father, help us to be like you. For we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.